0: to Success Unwrapped with Heather Vale. Welcome to Success Unwrapped with Heather Vale, the weekly radio talk show where we unwrap and reveal the secrets that successful people use, and you can too. Available at SuccessUnwrappedRadio.com. This podcast is sponsored by GoToMeeting.com. Part of business, we have to go to meetings, but it can be a real waste of time and money. And we know time is money. If you're driving two hours for a one-hour meeting or flying to headquarters for a half-day training session, you could be saving time and money by meeting online with GoToMeeting. You can invite people to meet you online. They can see your computer screen on their monitor. You can meet as long as you want, as often as you need, for one flat rate. You can try GoToMeeting free for 45 days with no credit card required by visiting GoToMeeting.com and typing in the promo code PODCAST. That's GoToMeeting.com and type in PODCAST. Try GoToMeeting free today with no credit card needed. My very special guest this week is Dr. Stephen Krauss, author, speaker, and one of the world's foremost success scientists. His teachings revolve around the real science of success and positive psychology. He also debunks what he calls self-help snake oil and reveals self-improvement urban legends. Steve has been featured in the media and major psychology textbooks. He has a Ph.D. in social psychology from Harvard University and won Harvard's Award for Teaching Excellence twice. He's the author of many articles and the highly acclaimed books, Psychological Foundations of Success, a Harvard-trained scientist separates the science of success from self-help snake oil, and Happiness is a Decision of the Heart. Steve, thank you so much for being here to help us unwrap the psychology of success. Well, thank you,
1: Heather. I'm excited to be
0: here. What exactly is positive psychology?
1: Positive psychology is actually one of the fastest-growing fields in all of the social sciences, and it's the scientific study of happy, successful, highly-achieving people. And you might think, well, gee, that's what psychologists have always studied, right? And, and in fact, psychologists have have historically done the opposite, starting with Freud and then perpetuated by billions of dollars in government research funding. Psychology historically has focused on people with psychological problems and depression and anxiety and therapy and these kinds of things. So as a result... Until the last decade or two, we haven't known a whole lot from a research perspective about what happy, successful people do differently to stay happy and successful. There was actually a, a really interesting study that looked at all of the research that was published in psychology journals over the past century. And what they found was that studies of negative emotions outnumbered studies of positive emotions by 14 to 1. And, and also in the literature was a real focus on, on treating psychological problems rather than preventing psychological problems. So really, in response to that, over the past couple of decades, there's been this growing interest in happy, successful, highly achieving people, and it's really become a, the focus of a, a lot of research in, uh, in this field of positive psychology. But unfortunately, a lot of it isn't making its way out there into the mainstream world of self-help and self-improvement, and so that's what I try to do.
0: Why has psychology traditionally focused on the negative rather than the positive?
1: You know, I, I think part of it was that's, that's where a lot of the research money went, that, uh, you know, all, all of the research that gets done by, by psychologists, I shouldn't say all of it, but, but a lot of it really is funded by government research, and just for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, a lot of them public health concerns, the, the government was very interested in, in understanding depression and anxiety and, you know, causes of uh, different kinds of psychological problems, and so that's, that's kind of where the research funding went, that's where the, the hiring went in universities. And, uh, you know, there was just really kind of a, a carrying on of the tradition that had been in psychology for so long, you know, starting with Freud, going with, you know, all series of other therapists who followed after him, was focusing on the negative. And so it's really been a shift, particularly in the last 10 years, to focusing on positive psychology.
0: So what exactly is the real science of success as opposed to self-help snake oil?
1: Well, when you look at the research, and I I think one of the reasons it's so important to look at the research when we start to talk about success and happiness, because there is a lot of self-help snake oil out there. There's a lot of stuff that sounds good, and we all kind of gravitate to it because they make promises of easy, effortless change, but it doesn't really work that way. Uh, you know, for example, a lot of self help books say, Well, you know, if you want to feel better about yourself, you know, just repeat affirmations. Look in the mirror and say, I like myself fifty times a day. And, you know, I, I wish it was that easy to, to change our, our self concept. Now maybe that can work in a very, very short term. But that that's the kind of technique that it's very commonly mentioned in self help books, but it, it's not nearly as powerful as a lot of the techniques that research has shown in terms of how people can change their self concept, change how they think about the world and so on. And the way that marketers of self-help snake oil try to sell the snake oil is to make it sound really easy and effortless. And you might think, well, gee, what could be easier than affirmations? Well, it would be easier if somebody else would repeat them for you. And that sounds so ridiculous, but that's actually the entire concept behind the $50 million a year industry of subliminal self-help tapes. You know, And you've probably heard of these tapes. The idea is you listen to them, you can't audibly hear the messages in them, but they're going to unleash the power of, of your subconscious mind in their tapes that promise to improve memory and self-esteem. And there there have been over a dozen independent scientific studies of these tapes, and all of the research basically shows that the, the only thing these tapes do is take money out of your wallet and put them into somebody else's wallet, because they really don't work. So that's that's kind of what I mean by, by self-help snake oil, and these too-good-to-be-true these promises that when they're... Looked at from a from a scientific perspective and a research perspective, just don't hold a lot of water.
0: Really, so there's no subliminal self help tapes that actually work? Not
1: in terms of uh, any of the research that's been published in a way that you know everyone can review the methodology until it's you know sort of you know, gone through the scientific process. As I mentioned, there've been over a dozen independent studies about subliminal effects like this published in scientific journals, and all of them suggest that these, these tapes really don't do anything. It's actually kind of interesting that if, if you go out on some of the websites that sell these these tapes and, and CDs and the kinds of audio programs, they're, they're very good at making it look like there's a lot of scientific research that is, is backing up what they're talking about. So for the subliminal uh, uh, self-help products, often they will talk about the Eat Popcorn, Drink Coke study, and, uh, you know, you, you may have heard of this, especially if you've read a lot of self-help books or go to a lot of motivational seminars. And it's actually uh, taught in, in some schools. And it's, it's become really kind of an interesting case study for thinking about how people are persuaded by, by pseudoscience. So the Eat Popcorn, Drink Coke study goes like this. Back in the 1950s, thousands of moviegoers in New Jersey were supposedly exposed to these subliminal messages saying, Eat popcorn and drink Coke while they were watching a movie. And there were alleged huge increases in sales. Coke sales were up 18%, popcorn sales were up 58%. And when word of this study came out in the late 50s, it caused a huge international uproar. Countries all over the world banned subliminal advertising. And even today, studies have shown that four out of five Americans have heard of subliminal advertising. And of those, two-thirds believed it could be effective. And a lot of this sort of comes back to the knowledge of this eat popcorn, drink Coke study. But what a lot of people don't know about the study is that in 1962, the author of this study admitted that he just made it up. His, his marketing business was failing. He had to come up with something dramatic to generate some publicity for himself. And this is what he came up with. And so this is one of what I call these self-improvement urban legends that get just passed uncritically from one person to the next until it gets accepted as true, and it ends up then being used as pseudo-scientific support for some of these snake oil products that don't really work.
0: What are some other self-improvement urban legends? Uh,
1: well, I think my favorite one is what I call the Yale Study of Goals. Uh, and, you, you'll, and you might be familiar with this if you read a lot of self-help books or if you've been to a lot of motivational seminars or sales training seminars and they talk about the power of setting goals. And the Yale study of goals supposedly went like this. Back in 1953, the graduating class at Yale was interviewed, and what they found was that 3% of them had written specific goals for what they wanted to accomplish in the future. 20 years later, they go back, they re-interview everybody, and they find that that 3% who had written specific goals were worth more financially than the other 97% put together. And that's, a, a really powerful illustration of the power of setting goals, except for one tiny little problem, which is that this study was never conducted. This is uh, another one of these urban legends. Uh, there have been literally hundreds of real studies published in real scientific journals about goal setting and, you know, the, the, the subtle things you need to do in terms of setting your goals right to maximize your, your performance. But nowhere in that literature will you find any reference to, to the Yale study of goals. Uh, Yale University gets contacted all the time for information about this study. They've, uh, investigated all of, of the sources on their end and their, their content. This is just a myth. And a few years ago, uh, Fast Company Magazine had this column called the Consulting Debunking Unit. And they had also heard about this study over and over again in, in, you know, consulting sessions and motivational seminars and so on. And so they, they went to the source. They went and talked to, to Tony Robbins and Brian Tracy and Zig Ziglar. Uh, basically, none of them had any actual documentation of this study. They had just heard each other tell the story. <laughs> so, a classic example of an urban legend you know, passed this from one person to the next until it becomes accepted as true because everybody's heard it so much. Now, urban legends get repeated for a reason because you know they convey some deeper underlying truth. And there certainly is truth to the notion that setting goals can enhance your performance. But if you look at the research, you find all kinds of, of subtleties about how you can set your goals better to maximize your performance even more. And, and you don't get any of that, that subtlety out of just an urban legend like this. that's so, you know, another important reason why when we start to think about how to achieve more success and happiness and make changes in our lives, it's really important to look back at the scientific research as a guide to what works and what doesn't.
0: Okay, so how should we approach goal setting? I,
1: I think of it kind of as a two-step process. And, you know, first, got to figure out the long-term vision. Stephen Covey was right when he said that one of the seven habits of highly effective people is beginning with the end in mind. And you know, whether you're looking at the research or looking at the lives of successful people, you see the importance of having clear, compelling, long-term vision. Uh, in fact, what the research shows is that people who have clear, non-conflicting, long-term goals about where they want to go in life are, are psychologically and even physically healthier than other people. People with this, this clear sense of long-term vision have all of a, a, a number of other kinds of benefits. They've been shown to procrastinate less, manage time better, make decisions better. Uh, they spend less time ruminating, meaning just kind of thinking about what they should do, and, and they really have an action orientation. So a lot of that starts with just a, a long-term vision of where you want to go. So uh, in, in my book, I present a number of uh, what I call vision question exercises to help people uh, think creatively about where they want to go in life. Uh, I've actually just recently been running a uh, telephone-based success boot camp. We just kicked it off last week. And as we were talking about this as a, kind of the first step in change, it's long-term vision. Uh, we gave people a couple of interesting assignments, one of which was to write their list of a 100 things they want to do before they die. And uh, it's just a, a, a good, creative, outside-box way of getting people to think creatively about where they want to go long-term. And then once you have a better sense of that, really the second important step in goal setting is setting some more short-term, specific, challenging goals. And again, in my book and on my website, I kind of go into all kinds of detail about the subtleties of setting those more short-term goals. But the key things are specific, challenging, near-term goals. One of the examples that I use... Uh, there's a lot of research on goal setting in sports psychology, and uh, sports psychologists routinely work with uh, our Olympic athletes and really Olympic athletes from all over the world now. And one of the things that those sports psychologists have found is that yeah, it's it's really important that high-level athletes have a compelling long-term vision, like winning the gold medal. But if they wake up every morning and say, "I got to win the gold medal," I got to win the gold medal, and it becomes just daunting. You start to wonder how am I ever going to get you know from from here to there. And so what what sports psychologists do is then really focus athletes on much more short-term, specific, challenging, quantifiable goals about you know, how are you going to perform in the next meet or the next practice. So I, I think we can all learn a lot from that, that long-term combined with short-term goal setting.
0: What are the five characteristics of successful people?
1: Well, in... in My book, I I have it laid out kind of as a a step-by-step process. and We've actually touched on the first two steps. The first one is vision, like clearly long-term of where you want to go. Second is what I call strategy, which means this kind of more short-term goal-setting, creating action plans, overcoming barriers. Step three is belief, confidence. All kinds of research shows, regardless of how you label it, whether it's confidence or self-efficacy, it goes by all different labels in, in the research literature. But we know in study after study that people who believe they're going to be successful are, in fact, more successful. So that's that's the third key step. Fourth is persistence. Again, a whole wealth of research that backs up the the common knowledge that success takes hard work and determination and rebounding from setbacks. Uh, And finally, fifth, learning. And by that, I just mean learning when your strategy is working and when it's not, when it's time for a course correction. And in in all of these five steps, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, if you're doing well in those steps, you're going to tend to achieve more and be happier. But the question is, how do you perform better at these steps? And that's really where all this new research on positive psychology can help us. If we look into the research, it gives us a number of tips on, well, based on the research, how can we do a better job of clarifying our vision or becoming more confident or rebounding better from setbacks? So that's really what I try to focus on in my work Are kind of the the, the practical research-based techniques that people can use to perform better in these key areas.
0: Okay, so let's break it down by steps and go into some of the tools and techniques that people can use. You talked about the importance of a long-term vision, but I hear from a lot of people who aren't really clear on what their vision is and they don't know how to get clear. How would they do that? Uh, it's uh,
1: it, it's definitely a process. You know, as I was telling somebody about our success boot camp, uh, and I was explaining, Gee, you know, in the first session, you know, it's about an hour, and we help people figure out what they want out of life. And people say, well, you, you can help people do that in an hour. And what it is, in an hour, we can give people some some tools and and some creative techniques that can help them think about that differently. But it, it, it's going to be a process. You know, most people in figuring out what they want out of life. Uh, it doesn't strike them like a sudden lightning bolt from the sky. It's kind of a process where you think about it and you try new things and you refine your, your vision over time. So what I try to do is just give people some some guidelines for how they go about that process and how do you clarify what it is that you really want. Uh, and what you really want to do is put people in a certain kind of mindset. It's almost a brainstorming kind of mindset. If you've ever done any brainstorming, you kind of know the rules of you know delay judgment and gratification and just try to be really creative and really outside the box often people have a hard time doing that. So that's why we use some of these more uh, creative techniques like the list of a 100 things that you want to do before you die. But there, there are a number of things that we can do to kind of help people start thinking about that vision in a, in, in a more creative way. There's also some really good books on the topic that I recommend to people uh, and that you know, we recommend on our uh, website. You can go check that out. Uh, one is uh, Poe Bronson's What Should I Do With My Life? It's just an interesting journalistic view of all different people different ages with different ambitions who are all wrestling with that that fundamental question in in different ways what should i do with my life so there there are some interesting resources like that that give people some tools for more creative thinking about what they really want
0: what would be one example of a creative tool that someone could use right now
1: Well, you know, I've mentioned that uh, list of 100 things you do before you die. I think that's a great one. Mm -hmm. Um, Another exercise that I do, and it it may sound a little bit uh, hokey and self-healthy at first, but uh, I think there's some interesting uh, historical examples. Try writing an obituary for yourself as if you were to pass away today, and try writing an obituary for yourself as it would be 10 years from now, assuming that you've accomplished all the things that you want to accomplish. And like I said, that, that exercise may sound a little hokey, but there's a really interesting historical example. And that's the case of Alfred Nobel, and when you say in Nobel, everybody thinks, oh, Nobel Prize, and that's what we know him for today. Uh, in fact, Alfred Nobel was a weapons merchant, and had made a lot of money uh, with dynamite. So one day, Nobel's brother passes away, and the newspapers make a mistake, and instead of running the obituary for Nobel's brother. They they thought that Nobel himself had died. So they, they wrote his obituary, and what they wrote about him in that obituary was uh, you know Alfred Nobel who invented the most destructive force known to man in dynamite. And talked about all the you know the killing that resulted from it. And he saw that obituary and he said, "No, that's not going to be my legacy." And just by virtue of having seen you know an obituary that might have been It inspired him to totally change his life, to develop the Nobel Prizes. So I I think it's a really powerful example of how thinking about your legacy can really powerfully shape where you want to go in life.
0: To visit Dr. Stephen Krause's websites, go to stevekrause.com or realscienceofsuccess.com. And I hope you've enjoyed the first segment of our interview, but it's not over. There's a full 200% more than what you just heard, where we delve deeper into these success principles. To unwrap the full interview and get lots more tools for success, just sign up to become a Success Unwrapped member on any level you choose at successunwrapped.com/members. This has been Success Unwrapped with Heather Vale. Be sure to tune in to the next edition of Success Unwrapped, helping you to unwrap and discover your own potential for success. Until next time, keep unwrapping. I'm Heather Vale. This podcast is part of the Blueberry Network at Blueberry.com. That's spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com.